Welcome to another edition of Heartland History, a podcast of the Midwestern History Association. My name is John Lauk, your host. Our show is produced by Dana Brown. Today we are joined by Adam Aronson, a professor of history at Manhattan College in the Bronx. Adam is also the director of the Urban Studies Program at Manhattan College. Today we'll be talking about his history of St. Louis, which is entitled The Great Heart of the Republic. This book was published in 2011 by Harvard University Press. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Adam, tell us about your book, and in particular, your idea that the Civil War, which we often think of as being fought between the North and the South, tell us about your idea that the Civil War was really a clash of three different regions. Yes. So, in the 19th century, the United States, as it reached from sea to shining sea, had three regions. Um, It had the North, it had the South, and after 1848 and that new territory was added, it also now had a West. Of course, there had been an earlier West, the West of the Louisiana Purchase, and even before that, the West of what we think of as the Old Northwest, a lot of what becomes the Midwest in those sections. Um, But this new West changed how people thought about the country, he thought about its prospects, and even thought about its politics. What I argue in the book is that we often think about the the war as being a conflict over slavery and a conflict over slavery's expansion, um, or about a question of states' rights and and sort of the role of the federal government in relation to the various states. Um, I centered my book in St. Louis because I think you can see all of these conflicts coming together. If you were in Boston, you've got a very northern anti-slavery view. If you were in Chelsea, it was a very pro-slavery states' rights view. If you were in a place like San Francisco, you would know about the West and the, the prospects of the West and how Westerners thought about this differently. But in St. Louis, you had all these groups together, living next to each other, um, people who were very much aligned with the South from the South, aligned with the North from the North, um, very much invested in the West, all living on the same blocks and trying to kind of find a way forward for the United States together. Um, what I argue in the book is that it's about slavery and it's about expansion, things, things we've known, but it's a way in which the West thought the, the possibility of expansion, Western advocates thought, would end the question of slavery. Right? Once we had a transcontinental railroad, once we had access to all the new markets of the Pacific and the gold and silver that was being found in the West, it's the question about slavery much less important. And I think you can see that in things like the popular sovereignty effort put in place in Utah and New Mexico, and then in Kansas and Nebraska, um, that of course brings us close to civil war when it fails. Um, And St. Louis was a place for me where you can see all those things coming together, and you can see that there's a very distinctive Western side of the war, something that people have not written about. Um, And since then, I've actually also uh, co-edited a volume called Civil War West, where I talk about how the issues of the Civil War and Reconstruction look different in the West, but they're still part of a national conversation about um, how will these states be united, um, what will be the chain of authority, and what will that mean for the country going forward. 
Adam, one of the phrases that uh, consistently comes up in your book is the phrase cultural civil war. What do you mean by that? Right. Well, so the, the civil wars we often think about it is a military conflict, right? It, it, uh, hundreds of thousands of people die. It transforms all kinds of parts of the United States politics, but also industry um, and culture. Uh, and in a place like St. Louis, and a lot of the places in the West, you get very small skirmishes when it comes to civil war battles. Um, nothing to compare to Gettysburg or Antietam when it comes to real numbers of deaths or um, people involved. On the other hand, I think those conflicts um, in places like uh, Jefferson City, Missouri, uh, and um, Glorieta Pass in New Mexico, um, even a small skirmish in, in the Seattle Harbor, um, all of these things have a lot to say about the possibilities of where the Confederacy could have expanded, what the Union needed from the West. And so I as a kind of wider conflict within the culture, the question of what will happen with slavery, what will happen with expansion. Um, and it plays out over decades and in somewhat unusual places. For example, Washington University in St. Louis um, was founded by William Greenleaf Elliott, uh, who came from a family of New England ministers. Um, but he founds a school in St. Louis that he wants to be non-sectarian and non-partisan. That's part of the Constitution of Washington University. He names it after um, George Washington, a man who was never president of Missouri because it was added by Jefferson in the Louisiana Purchase. Um, and so he wants to make St. Louis as a place where the nation could come together and solve these things. And I see that as a response to what he sees as an increasingly divided culture. Um, he thinks the Midwest will be a place where the country can come together. And indeed, in the book, I talk about how during Reconstruction, there's also an effort to uh, move the national capital to St. Louis, um, which, of course, doesn't happen. But I think it's another interesting way of looking at how people in what we now think of as the Midwest that the center of the country would be best positioned to bring all the regions together. Mr. Elliott, uh, the founder of Washington University, is, I believe, and uh, please explain this uh, for our listeners, Adam, is the father of T.S. Elliott. Is that correct? I think he's the grandfather of T.S. Elliott. I have to check my notes on that. Um, but yes, T.S. Elliott who has a very unusual relationship with St. Louis, right? That he, he's born there, and at times he's willing to embrace St. Louis, but generally he's willing to, he wants to think of himself as British after a certain point and sort of ignore his um, American upbringing. Um, so I think, it's, it's, but yes, he definitely, William Greenleaf Elliott is this, uh, I think he's the grandson of the minister of the Old North Church during the Revolution, and he's the grandfather of T.S. Elliott. That's what I'm, I'm remembering right now. <laughs> Adam, in the uh, traditional narrative of American history leading up to the Civil War, a lot of emphasis is placed on the Kansas-Nebraska Act as a triggering mechanism in terms of uh, beginning the process in the North and in the Midwestern states of uh, 
of growing anti-Southern feeling and sort of setting the stage for the coming of the Civil War. And uh, those of us who have taken an interest in Midwestern history have noticed the impact of the Kansas-Nebraska Act in places like Wisconsin and Minnesota and Michigan, etc., in terms of ginning up anti-Southern feeling and drawing these Midwestern states much more closely into the orbit of the North. Is that something that you dispute in your book, or do you have a different rendering of events in your book, or how would you how would you tackle that uh, process? Yes, I, I see the Kansas-Nebraska Act as a key moment. Um, I think I just put it in a slightly wider frame, um, in that the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act is the idea from Stephen Douglas of Illinois um, that popular sovereignty, this new idea that Lewis Cass introduced for the far west, could be married with the need for um, a new territory to build that western railroad, and that this ability to take slavery out of a geographic uh, equation and put it alongside the railroad, which again I think western advocates, including Douglas, thought would really transform the country. It would really change slavery politics completely. Um, this would be a way to diffuse a slavery conflict. Um, as we know, he's 100% wrong, right? That he actually makes something that had been somewhat stable um, under the Missouri Compromise, this line that had just divided territory, into something that was much more able to be thought about, right? This, by not saying how many people needed to be in the territory or what, what sort of criteria needed to be put in play for an election over slavery, um, he creates an atmosphere that will create violence. Um, the way I read the anti-Nebraska parties, the parties that become the Republican Party um, built in places like Wisconsin and Michigan in this moment, is that they, they understand how this explicit repeal of the Missouri Compromise is removing what had been the bedrock of how the Louisiana Purchase and before that the Old Northwest and Old Southwest territories had been built. A geographic line saying this is an area where we're going to have slavery, this is an area where we won't have slavery, which provided a, a stability and reliability. Um, like a lot of the, the folks in the Western camp in my book, um, Douglas thinks the West and the railroad are ready to solve this problem in the 1840s and 50s. Um, turns out, you know, the, the American West won't rise and in terms of an economy and politics to be a major, major force in American politics until after World War II, but they don't, they don't realize it's 100 years away in the 1840s and 50s. Things have been changing so fast, they figure within their lifetime, uh, the West will be able to rise and end this question around slavery, and hence, it's worth pushing forward now. That's how I see the politics of Thomas Hart Benton in Missouri and Stephen Douglas in Illinois. Um, and to some extent, even people like Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln, right? They had grown up in what had been an earlier West, and they understood the promise of expansion to the West. Um, but, you know, as their careers continue, they understood that the North and South were just so much more powerful, and the politics of slavery in the South were getting so much more extreme that this wasn't something that the railroad, popular sovereignty, and 40 years would be able to solve. We are talking today with Adam Aronson. 
Adam is a professor of history at Manhattan College in the Bronx. We are talking about his recent book entitled The Great Heart of the Republic, a book about the city of St. Louis in the Civil War era. Adam, I'm curious about uh, when you see the emergence of an identifiable Midwest in American history. Uh, in your book, you obviously talk about these three major regions, uh, the North, the South, and the West. When do you see a Midwest emerging um, that is identifiable and one that people um, associate themselves with? And when is that language, uh, when does that become more prominent? Um, in the book, I talk about the rock and fall, to some extent, of St. Louis as a national city, right? The book started with the idea that these are all St. Louis boosters who want to create for themselves this great national city that will be able to take in all the elements of the country. And I see... The moment in 1869 where they don't move the national capital to St. Louis um, and all of these reformers who sort of see Reconstruction as going too far and they want to find a new path, um, they, they can refer to it as new departure Democrats after a certain point or liberal Republicans. Um, a lot of those involved are German immigrants, um, including Pulitzer and Karl Schertz um, and Joseph Kepler. All of those three men move to New York City, and they get involved with democratic politics there. Um, and that's the moment where I see St. Louis, though it continues to have a very important regional center, um, and its region is actually focused towards the southwest. It, it has railroad lines into places like Dallas and Santa Fe that run from St. Louis and then later from Kansas City. Um, it begins to have a slightly different, much more regional identity at that moment. So I would agree with uh, one of your previous guests, Andrew Seale, and talking about how the, the after the Civil War um, in the Reconstruction and really the retreat from Reconstruction is a period where uh, a Midwestern identity is, is acknowledged. I, I definitely see roots in the history of the Louisiana Purchase and in the, the Missouri Compromise and in the various ways in which slavery had been restricted in places like Illinois and Indiana. Um, you know, you can see it even in Tocqueville's comments about how he thinks some of these states, which are have no slavery, but have also banned free blacks, are some of the race, most racist places he's ever been. That he's saying in the 1840s about places um, north of slavery. I think there are ways in which the ethnic history of German immigration and others in that period does a lot to create the Midwestern identity, um, as we can see it later. But I finally only acknowledge it and see it as its own separate space, separate from what becomes the further west, separate from the Union North um, in this period of the, the retreat from Reconstruction, so starting around 1870. You just mentioned the important uh, German element that was active in St. Louis civic affairs. And uh, in your book, in Chapter 6, you talk a lot about the uh, role of the German immigrants uh, in this new West. Of course, one of the most distinguishing uh, features about the American Midwest is that it is the destination of most German immigrants into the United States. Uh, places like Wisconsin, for example, are heavily populated by German immigrants. Could you explain to our listeners a little bit more about 
why the Germans made places like St. Louis and the Midwest different from other places in the country. Right. Uh, so, especially after the revolution in 1848 in Germany, where you have a lot of democratic, liberal leaners uh, trying to get rid of monarchy, get rid of aristocracy, and make Germany into a unified democracy, um, they're very passionate about it. And by 1851, they've mostly all lost. Um, and they look for another place to go. Um, they look at the United States as, a, as one of these experiments in democracy, a place where they will be able to have that political freedom. And um, both politically-minded Germans and other people moving for economic or family reasons uh, very quickly see the United States as a place to go um, because of the nature of the immigration patterns at the time. Um, it was cheaper to go out to Cincinnati or Milwaukee or St. Louis uh, than it was to try to stay in New York and compete with the groups that were already there um, or also just arriving off of boats into Baltimore and, and other cities. So the Midwest becomes a place where uh, lots of German traditions, German churches, um, German beer halls uh, are very much established and uh, German as a language is taught in the public schools in St. Louis, for example, from the 1870s until the beginning of World War One, right? Basically overnight with World War One, a lot of this proud German tradition is quickly hidden away in the American Midwest. Um, but for that entire period throughout the Midwest, you have uh, German as something celebrated, German, German culture celebrated, and it is, I think, a very distinctive factor in creating what we think of as Midwest, various kinds of both rural and ur uh, urban German traditions. Um, for example, one of the groups that's involved with a number of the Civil War regiments are Turner, Turnverein, Turner societies. What's a Turner? A Turner is a gymnast. Um, these were essentially early athletic clubs uh, or gyms. And so they became places where uh, men had come together, had done physical exercise, and when the war came, um, the Germans are very much anti-slavery. They see slavery as uh, a threat to their own free labor, and so they, a lot of these German Turner clubs um, become regiments in the Union Army. Uh, Adam, you, uh, in addition to your book, The Great Heart of the Republic, you have been involved in editing a couple of new books, uh, one of which is directly related to the Civil War and the experience of the Civil War and Reconstruction in the broader American West. Uh, can you talk about how that book came together and some of its major conclusions about how Civil War and Reconstruction was different or experienced differently in the West? Yes. So after I finished The Great Heart of the Republic and I realized I, I had seen this three sides of a Civil War, um, I knew that that might be something people were a little uh, reluctant to embrace. Um, that the idea of two sides, North and South, had, had been so much part of the history, um, there wasn't really that much written about the Western experience of the Civil War era. Um, I had the opportunity to work with uh, the Clement Center for Southwest Studies at um, Southern Methodist University, as well as with the Autry Museum in Los Angeles. And together, we were able to put together actually two books, the one I edited, um, as well as one edited by Virginia Sharp. Um, as well as the museum exhibition, um, which was called Empire and Liberty. And it held us, helped us think 
in the broadest possible terms about what have these ideas, empire and liberty, meant in American history. Um, the Louisiana Purchase, uh, Jefferson talks about it as an empire for liberty, right, which empire is often uh, seen as the opposite of a democracy, a republic, a place where you might have more liberty. Um, so that contradiction exists way back in American history, um, even even into the, the Constitution or the old Northwest Territory before the Constitution, um, and it continues after the Civil War. Um, the West is the place where, while African Americans are given more rights in the Constitution during Reconstruction, soon after uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act says these people should be uh, taken out of the country or prevented from coming into the United States based on what we see as a racial difference. And part of the defense is they say this is a way to prevent slavery from reemerging. We're, we're afraid that we're going to end up with Asian American Chinese slaves, and so we don't want that to happen, so hence we're just going to exclude Asian people. So there's interesting moments where the logic of race, of labor, um, of politics in the West uh, intersect at interesting angles with what we often think of as, as the standard story of the East Coast. Um, another example of that is women's suffrage. Um, the first place that women are given the right to uh, vote as a group is in Wyoming in 1869, that same moment that St. Louis is trying to bring the national capital. Um, but as Virginia Sharp writes in her essay, uh, the effort to bring women the vote was in some ways a response to the fear that there would now be black men voting. That the white men wanted to have white women voting as well as a way to balance out the, the votes of black men in that moment. Um, so it helps open up wider questions about uh, slavery and sovereignty, um, whether it's in Texas or in Seattle um, or in St. Louis. I'd like to ask you about a couple of the other scholarly projects uh, that you're involved in, Adam. Uh, but first, I wanted to ask you a personal question. Uh, you grew up in California and went on to earn your Ph.D. at Yale in Connecticut, and now you teach at Manhattan College. Can you tell us why you came to be so interested in the center of the country and places like St. Louis? Yes, as I came east for school, um, both as an undergraduate and then as a graduate student, I, I sort of realized that the way I looked at a lot of American history, um, places that were important, were different than the way people had uh, been told on the East Coast. Um, and so I was interested in these questions of region um, and questions of how regional identities are built through focus on certain people, on certain stories. Um, and St. Louis was a place where I could see that happening um, in the 1840s and 50s. As an undergraduate, uh, the project that brought me to St. Louis was about following Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, he did a bunch of lecture tours in the 1850s, and he, you could see him moving along with the growth of the railroad, the changing steamboats, other things like that. Um, he goes to Sandusky, Ohio. You know, he goes to Detroit. He goes to St. Louis. Um, and you can see him spreading out, often speaking to places where there had been a, a Yankee migration, a Yankee diaspora, much like uh, he had experienced in terms of his audiences in New England. 
Um, but in his journals, you can see that he also realizes these places are different. Um, and he feels St. Louis, he really is up against the face of slavery. He sees it as this sort of, um, you know, radically dangerous place where he goes. Um, that's because he never actually goes to the Deep South. Um, he's never in Charleston uh, giving these lectures that are hinting at abolitionism. Um, St. Louis is sort of the most risky place he would go. And that's the project that brought me to St. Louis. And it made me realize how St. Louis had these aspects of people from the North and the South and Germany um, and elsewhere, all thinking about what this new promise of the West would mean for them, right? That the city as the gateway to the West was something very much felt in the mid-19th century. Um, people investing in railroads, people focused on water trade, and um, a place like the St. Louis Mercantile Library or Washington University, you can see in their history how these ideas played out. And so I began to see that as a Westerner in school in the East, the Midwest was a place where I could see some of those regional strands coming together, and I could figure out how how one became the other or how they were in conversation. And that's how I came to work on St. Louis. Well, that's a wonderful backstory, Adam. I'm very interested in this uh, story of Emerson's Midwestern tour through Sandusky and Detroit, etc. Is there a source that comes to mind just off the top of your head that our listeners could uh, perhaps track down and learn more about Emerson's Western tour? Yeah, the, the place I first learned about it... Um, is there's an essay by Mary Kupiev Kaysen about Emerson's time in Cincinnati. Um, and that got me involved with, there's a whole set of uh, Emerson documentary projects. Um, there are people who have documented his entire set of lecture trips over all the decades he went out and where he went on each day. Um, the scripts of his lectures, his journals, all of those things have been published. Um, and yeah, as an undergraduate, I was working on Emerson. Uh, time in Rochester and St. Louis and how he thought of these two cities as different. One, a place where Frederick Douglass was very active and living, and the other a place where slavery existed and the Dred Scott case was underway in the period he was there. Um, it's something that I actually do hope to publish someday, but it definitely kind of, it, it's in the background of, of the book as well. Well, I certainly uh, vote for you publishing this work. I would love to read it. And uh, I should also note that Mary Kupiak Caton was married for a long time to uh, Andrew Caton, who unfortunately passed away in 2015. Uh, he was a great booster of the work of the Midwestern History Association. He served on our board and wrote many books, uh, foundational books about the history of the Midwest, including histories of early Ohio and Indiana. So uh, that makes sense that uh, Mary would be very interested in that topic. Uh, Adam, I wanted to ask you about a couple of your other projects. You are very active in terms of getting historical work out to a broader audience. And so you have uh, you have a seminar uh, designed to do this at Manhattan College, and you've also been involved in these sort of efforts at the Huntington Library in California. Can you talk about those efforts a little bit? Yeah, so I had the privilege of going to graduate school at Yale, um, and John Demos, one of the professors there, um, had a course focused on the ability to write in different history in different ways. 
narrative history, experimental history. And a number of us who worked with John um, were able to take this idea out and create writing history seminars. Um, I had run one as a graduate student at Yale, and then um, I was living in California for a while, and I ran one called the Past Ten Seminar at the Huntington Library. And now uh, we have one called the Writing History Seminar in New York City um, in cooperation with the New School um, and NYU, and this year we're also meeting at Columbia. So these are, this is a chance to have historians talk less about their arguments and their evidence and more about their strategies for reaching different publics, right? Uh, is, it, is it a question of reaching elementary school public? Is it a question of reaching people in a newspaper or on social media? Um, what does it mean when historians work with filmmakers? Um, what does it mean to have something driven by a character, and maybe that's a character, a historical figure who you don't like, right? Are you willing to spend 10 years writing about somebody in a way that shows your distaste for the person, but also their importance in history? Questions like that are part of what drive our seminar, and it's a real great opportunity to help people think about how to take their historical knowledge and take it to a wider audience because I think people are very much interested in history but sometimes historians don't write in a way that's easy for other people to access. Your comment about uh, writing about people you don't like reminds me of a recent essay I read about the uh, English professor Mark Shore who was at um, Berkeley for many years and his struggles to finish what turned out to be a massive biography of Sinclair Lewis. And he was discussing how um, in his 10th, 11th, and 12th year working on this project, he hated Sinclair Lewis so much he could barely write another word. So <laughs> this is a good thing to think about and explore um, before you begin uh, these big projects. Uh, Adam, you also, I am told, are uh, beginning a project about the movement of African Americans from Canada to the United States during the Civil War era, and in particular, uh, their movement to the Midwest and places like Michigan and Detroit. Uh, what's, what's the background on that project? So the origin story is that while I was in St. Louis, I um, found in the U.S. Colored Troop records people who were registering um, as natives of Canada. Um, with the U.S. Colored Troops. And I thought that was an interesting connection um, that people of African-American descent were coming back to the United States and joining the Army. Um, I kept that in the back of my mind. Um, I've now had a chance to think more about it and to do uh, research on it. And I found that there's, we have this idea of the Underground Railroad, of fugitive slaves and free blacks going into Canada um, but then they sort of disappear from our narrative, right? That we think, are they still there? What happens to them after the Civil War? Um, and along with a number of other scholars who've been working on, on some of these communities, I've found not only do a number of African Americans come back into the United States to fight uh, in the Civil War, there's a, a continual movement, uh, especially around the Great Lakes, of people between Ontario and the Buffalo-Niagara region, um, the Detroit region, but also due to, to steamboats across the Great Lakes 
into places like Toledo and Cleveland and Ohio. Um, and so my project is looking at these border crossers, what I'm calling African North Americans, people who had part of their identity um, from time in Canada and part of their identity from time in the United States of African descent, and thinking about whether their experience of crossing the border in this era of emancipation changes how they thought about their their politics, their family relationships. Um, and I'm also trying to put it in a wider scope of just the incredible movement before the Great Migration. We often think about the Great Migration as this moment um, when African Americans come to the North, and in terms of numbers, it's much larger. But I think there may be, again, something interesting, like, like the Civil War in the West, about these early movements of African Americans um, between the U.S. and Canada, in a period where actually there's a lot of people crossing the U.S.-Canada border for jobs, say, in an automobile plant in the early 20th century, um, or to find someone uh, from their same religious group to marry in Michigan or Minnesota. So I'm, I'm working on figuring out the parameters of that project um, and learning more about these people, many of whom we can see in the census or in other legal records, but I haven't found uh, enough personal papers for many of them yet. So that's an interesting challenge with it as well. Sounds like a wonderful project, Adam. You have been listening to Adam Aronson, a professor of history at Manhattan College in the Bronx. We have been discussing many of Adam's works and his projects, but in particular, we've been discussing his book, The Great Heart of the Republic, which was published in 2011 by Harvard University Press. I'm your host, John Lauk. Uh, thank you for listening for to another episode of Heartland History. Heartland History is produced by Dana Brown. Thank you for joining us, and thank you, Adam, for spending some time with us today. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.